I was working at the University of Waterloo, trying to figure out what I was going to do at that point. And we used to drive past the Vineland sign and I'd say, you know, you should really give me a job. And a posting came up and the focus was on something that was a really solid fit with my skill set and background, which was on tree establishment in challenging environments. But a lot of time in the nursery and I'd spent a lot of time working in disturbed ecosystems. And so this position was kind of like in the aha moment. And so I applied and luckily I got it. Hi, Jim Wilson here. Welcome to NGB Ideas. This podcast is about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community, and it's sponsored by OmniaBio and supported by the TMX Group. If you're not aware, it's also part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, that's taking place at the Hamilton Convention Centre on Monday, October 2nd. We invite you to find out more at nextgreatbigideas.com. The Canadian life sciences community contains a broad spectrum of sectors, and some of our listeners may be surprised to learn that spectrum includes agriculture and horticulture. The Vineland Research and Innovation Centre in Vineland, Ontario, is one of the leading organizations in this area, and our guest today is Darby McGrath, who is Vice President Research and Development at the Centre. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Darby. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's jump right in. You were born in Niagara Falls, Ontario, and both of your parents worked. Your mother worked at Cyanamid and the Niagara District School Board, and your father worked at General Motors. I'd appreciate you telling us a bit about them. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim, for having me. I'm really excited to have this chat with you today. My mother worked at Cyanamid for a number of years. She worked a couple of different jobs there, actually. And one of the things she talks about having the most fun doing was actually working at the switchboard there back in the old days. And then, you know, when we came along, she took a bit of a hiatus working, but ended up working as a secretary in the school board for the rest of her career. She was well tied to education. And I think she she's a very curious and strong woman. So let us down some good roads. My dad, he was, he's still super smart and very talented in all things trades, extremely smart at math. He helped with my math homework a lot growing up, but he was actually a, a tradesman in cutter grinder, actually at General Motors and tool and die maker. I'm thinking some of the younger listeners to this podcast might be Googling switchboard. It sounds like your parents encouraged you to be curious. Yes, I would say you know, when you think of the gifts that your parents give you, that's one of them for sure. My siblings and I was the chance to think about things and to not always take the easy solution on things. Where in Niagara Falls did you grow up? Was it right downtown? Were you overlooking the falls? Were you in the suburbs? In a manner of speaking, we did overlook the falls. We're actually from Chippewa. It was actually a village and is now a suburb of Niagara Falls. It's grown a lot. Claim to fame as you drive towards Chippewa, you would hit marine land. So people might know that as a landmark. <laughs> I understand your grandfather was interested in natural sciences and is perhaps the person who kindled that interest in you. I didn't know my grandparents, so I'm a bit jealous, but what was he like? He was actually a teacher in the Niagara District School Board as well. He also worked at Cyanamid, but he was someone that I would say spent a lot of time encouraging us to explore the natural world. This is a fun memory for me, but he used to take us on a lot of hikes, some begrudgingly and others we were more excited about. But he spent a lot of time teaching us on those hikes. I always joke about the fact that I started using field guides at a young age, but he would quite literally bring along the Audubon field guides and things like that for us to look at 
all the plants, birds, things like that, that we explored while we were on those hikes. So we were very fortunate because of where we lived. We have a lot of really cool areas to explore, like the Niagara Escarpment, and he made great use of that. That sounds like a great upbringing. You have two siblings. Can you tell us a bit about them? I'm the youngest, sort of the quintessential youngest child in some ways. So you were absolutely spoiled. I would say I'm very driven because I have two extremely smart and talented older siblings. So that makes you have to work very hard as the youngest sibling. My oldest brother, Liam, is a platoon chief in the city of St. Catharines Fire Departments. And my sister, Erin, lives out in Alberta. They have a family nursery out there, which she helps with. In spite of what you just said, I read that most of your childhood was spent indoors. Definitely not. I was the kid that the last week before we had to go back to school, I would cry because it meant that I would have to go in and sit inside now. And so that was very hard for me. We're on the same wavelength. I was similar when I was a kid. So you grew up in Niagara Falls and went to high school there. What school did you go to? I went to West Lane Secondary School. It's kind of a cool story because we recently had a high school co-op student at Vineland and I got to see the old guidance counselor. I should say old, that might be very insulting. Pleasure to see him again. Interesting to still have ties there. Wow, the circle completes. Were you the kid that spent time in the library? Were you the kid at the back of the school that everybody went, oh, she's one of the cool kids? Or were you a gym rat? Yeah, I was very into sports. Academically, school was always important to me, but spent a lot of time at the arena playing hockey. I played rugby, trying to think of all the sports I played in high school. Hockey and rugby were the two probably that I spent the most time doing. But yeah, anytime I could be outside with an activity, that was priority. I'm guessing you would look back on your high school years with fondness rather than regret. Oh, yeah, I think so. High school... It was a little bit of a means to an end. I was not someone that excelled in the social side of things. I had lots of friends, but for me, I like to learn and I like to play sports, so it was pretty easy. <laughs> in 2003, you went to Lake Forest College, which is a private liberal arts college located north of Chicago. And that academic path is not a traditional one for most Canadian students. I'm guessing hockey played a bit of a role there. It did. I wound up in Chicago playing on the varsity hockey team down there. And what a cool experience that was right on Lake Michigan and in a really interesting little town there that claim to fame is actually some of the people that live in that town are like Michael Jordan and Mr. T, I think. So it's not like, you know, you picture Chicago, but it's this very sheltered suburb that's north of the city. It was an amazing experience. I'll bet. What position did you play in hockey? I play defense. Still do when I can make it out to the rink. And in your college team, how good were you? I was the captain in my senior year there. So I, I guess I was at least had leadership skills, if not always on the ice. <laughs> and the team did well? Yeah, it was a growing couple of years. So the program was very new there. And, and it's interesting because the legacy of women's talk in Canada is much longer than in the United States. And frankly, was mostly Canadian players on the American scene at that time. What is it like a uh, student athlete in the U.S.? It's challenging. I think I was eight, four years away. So you're still really quite young and immature in a lot of ways. Where we were, the centers that we played in were often in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It constituted a lot of time on the bus. I recall a trip to North Dakota that was 13 hours or something like that. It requires real commitment to 
your academics and trying to stay on top of all of those things while also participating a little bit training a little bit expected of you as a varsity athlete. So you came back to Ontario in 2006 and you did a post-grad diploma at Niagara College on ecosystem restoration. Could you tell us a bit about that diploma? What is ecosystem restoration? It's a really cool program that Niagara College offers and it's really targeted at we had a quite a mix of people with undergrad backgrounds, as well as people, I think, that actually had masters that go into that program. But it gives you very practical, hands-on learning and to get into the field of restoration ecology. Was at the time a growing field. It's pretty established now. Thinking about roles in conservation authorities, lots of outdoor field courses. After that, you went to the University of Waterloo, where you did your master's in environmental studies and a PhD in social and ecological sustainability. Listeners to this podcast know that at some point I ask our guests to explain something for them, but I'm really asking you to explain it to me because I don't know what that means. So I would appreciate you explaining what those degrees are all about. My master's in environmental resource studies, it is what it sounds like. It's very much a focus on, it can be a bit of everything, which is why I love the department that I was in, the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo. My focus was really on natural systems that were disrupted or modified. So there's lots of people that were in that program doing different things, but my focus was on actually on Lake Erie Islands and the impacts of the nesting birds, cormorant. That was a really interesting project. And as I moved into my PhD, that program was very interesting to me because sustainability is still, I would say, a growing area. There's not very many PhD programs that are focused on sustainability and the social and ecological sustainability PhD is really around the environmental, ecological, as well as social aspects of, of sustainability. In that space, there was a lot of different people talking about a lot of different things, and I think the word sustainability a lot more, but this was really around some of the practical and theoretical underpinnings. So as you're going through your postgrad degrees, was there an intentional map that you were following, or was it just, oh, that, that, that looks interesting? Yeah, no map. And I don't know if that's a good thing to disclose or uh, the honest thing in any case, but definitely I was always interested in understanding how I could find a role or a career that allowed me to work in the natural sciences in a way that I found meaningful. But at one point, you know, he's looking at getting more into policy and sort of deviated from our pathway thinking, I don't think I can do this forever, but... <laughs> But I want to impact policy with evidence-based information, and that's how I ended up where I was. Did you play hockey at Waterloo? I did. I actually finished my undergraduate degree in three years, so I had a couple of years of eligibility left when I came back to Canada. And so I, on a whim, took a flyer and just packed my bag and went out to the trials. Geraldine Heaney was coaching at Waterloo at that time, wasn't she? I'm not going to lie. That was... A bit of the reason of why I went out to the tryouts, because Geraldine Heaney is a lifelong hero of mine as a female hockey player in Canada. You know, I grew up watching her play and I thought, boy, I'll just go out and at least I get to be on the ice with her and see what happens. And you made the team. Yeah. And how'd the team do? The team there was awesome. I played one year, had some injuries that I'm dealing with. It was an awesome experience. I mean, that program benefited so much. Can you share some insights you may have on what being a student athlete was like? Do you think now it may have taught you more than you realized at the time? 
Yes, absolutely. That's one of those things that your mom and dad tell you when you're in the moment and you don't want to hear it. <laughs> this is all good. It's character building. And they weren't wrong. So when they listen to this, they can pat themselves on the back. The things that it taught me were resiliency, perseverance, and especially time management. One of the biggest challenges is that you basically are managing people print dogs. You're expected to train at the level of essentially a professional athlete without all the perks, of course. But at the same time, you're a full-time stable. And so I think that those were really important levels for me. And as I navigate life now, I'm grateful for those. I think I carry them with me. I think the biggest other thing is just like you learn how to manage disappointment. The highs are easy, right? But the lows, you have to really create a tool to make it through. So don't be too high when it's going well and don't be too low when it's not going well. That's right. Kind of like the same advice I give people in sales. So you graduated in 2012 with a doctorate in social and ecological sustainability. Can you give us a quick overview on your thesis? What was that about? Funny, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I said, I haven't gone back to that in a long time. It's one of those things that I think you finish, you close the book, and you never look back at it. No. So my thesis, it not surprisingly focused on natural and agricultural systems. I spent a lot of time on farms growing up. The better part of my life actually has been in farm work. And so my thesis actually looked at all this use, how we can create enabling policies to ecologically beneficial agricultural systems. But ultimately, it was around a strategy for the government of Canada or provincial government to understand how we could enable farmers better stewards of the land by giving them the tools that they needed in terms of not just incentives, but also the practical toolkit to actually rebuild some of those ecological beneficial entities. Thank you for that. I understand there have been a few people in your life who inspired you, and one of them was a, a literature professor at Lake Forest College. Who was he and what did he say? He was a Canadian prop in the States. It was a really interesting time to be in the state. This professor was from the Midwest of Canada, and he just spent so much time helping me navigate the complexities of my undergrad experience. And he's just funny, and he's one of those people that you go into the class and just be happy to see him. He made learning fun, and that's more than half the battle, I think. So your master's and PhD supervisor, Dr. Stephen Murphy, is another person that inspired you. He's been a wonderful coach, mentor, supervisor, professor, all of those great things. And I was fortunate enough to convince him to take me on as a student in my master's. And he let me stay on as a student for my PhD. Now, there are people who get their PhD because they're gifted students and it's just a natural path. Then there are others who get their PhD just through dogged determination. Which one were you? Probably I would fall into the latter category more. I'm probably smart enough. I guess you'd have to be to make it through some of these things. But frankly, you talk about the sort of the character building traits that come out of the school varsity sports experience. And that's one of the things that I have as a personality trait is just perseverance. I think that was one of the reasons that I completed for a PhD quickly as I did. But also, I think having great mentors to help you through it. I read that you've learned to listen to yourself. Is that the advice you would give to any listeners currently in university who are having difficulty figuring out what path they should be following? Yeah, I think when you are in those moments, there is so much noise. It often feels so overwhelming. And in some cases, it feels like there's almost too many options for you, right? There's all of these different paths you could take, or perhaps you feel like there's not enough paths that you can take. 
if I was able to speak to myself back then, I would say, you know, just take some time to listen to the things that interest me. Know the things you're good at. Recognize that reaching your goals is not necessarily a linear path kind of thing. For me, it's, it's definitely not linear. So after graduating, you became an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo. And for the non-academics who may be listening, what's the difference between an adjunct professor and a professor? So essentially, I was an instructor in the faculty, so I wasn't looking to become a tenure-track professor or anything like that. And this was kind of me figuring out whether academia was the right pathway for me or not. How quickly did you realize that maybe it wasn't? Pretty rapidly for me. I loved some of the courses I taught, like field ecology and things like that. Very interesting for me. The passion for me really was in the research. It was not so much in the instruction. We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. If your company is in the life sciences sector and you're looking for a great networking opportunity, we encourage you to join us at the Hamilton Convention Centre on Monday, October 2nd. NGB Ideas is sponsored by Omnibio and supported by the TMX Group. For details on the event, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. I'd like to talk about the Vineland Research and Innovation Center. This is a really cool place just off the QEW in the heart of the Niagara Peninsula. And I think like many people, I've driven by the Institute countless times and not really noticed it. I understand this organization was kind of refreshed in 2007. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. We are an independent, not-for-profit research organization. It's dedicated to sustainability and economic viability to me and monocultures. Our reason for existing is to help horticulture to be successful. And for us, that's a whole bunch of different things. And it definitely undertaking an industry-driven portfolio of projects, making sure that not only are we working on the right things, we're working with the right people. And frankly, when we say result-oriented, it means that we have to get those things into the hands of the people that need them most as quickly as we can. So the Institute has a number of research programs focused on automation biological crop protection, plant responses, and plant variety. Why should this be important for our listeners? These are the programs that will allow us to grow the food that we need for the future. Think about all of your fresh produce, vegetables, things like that for Canadian consumers. At Vineland, these programs are designed very strategically around our set of innovation goals that will help us to deliver on things like new plant varieties that are adapted to climate change or new technologies that will allow producers to work within the confines of some of the labor challenges that we're working with right now or developing new varieties that you would like in the grocery store. So what are the things that you like in terms of the way an apple tastes or an apple flavor or apple feel? These are the kinds of things that our programs actually are designed to deliver on. You joined the Institute in 2013 as a research scientist in environmental horticulture. What's the story behind how you ended up there? My husband and I joke about this all the time because, you know, I was working at the University of Waterloo trying to figure out what I was going to do at that point. And we used to drive past the Vineland sign and I'd say, you know, you should really give me a job. And a posting came up and the focus was on something that was a really solid fit with my skill set and background, which was on, it was really focused on tree establishment in challenging environments. Spent a lot of time in the nursery and I'd spent a lot of time 
working in this third ecosystem thing. So this position was kind of like in the aha moment. And so I applied and luckily I got it. Wow. That was 10 years ago. Last year, you were appointed to a new position. Could you tell us about that? So last year, I became the vice president of research and development. What that means is I manage Vineland's entire innovation and research portfolio. So those programs that you named, they kind of all sit inside of my R&D portfolio. And that's the cool part is I get to work on the strategy and I get to support really awesome scientists. I'm guessing you did not grow up thinking you'd be a vice president of a research and development institute in Niagara. No, not at all. When I started down the graduate school pathway, I, I had this feeling that I'd be moving away, that I wouldn't wind up where I was, even though, you know, I grew up in the Niagara region and I love horticulture here, tender fruit production. Like we are so unique here and it's so interesting. But I thought there's not always a huge job market here for where I might want to work. And so when you talk about mapping this all out, definitely didn't have a clear red dot on this point on the map. You mentioned it's unique. What's unique about it? Our production opportunities here in the peninsula are so unique. Our growing zones, our ability to grow tender fruit is unique, except for a couple small other areas in Canada, like BC and Kelowna, where they have the ability to grow stone fruit and tender fruit like we do here. It makes us really special in terms of what we can grow with respect to crops. We've been talking about how serendipitous your journey has been. Our paths universally are typically not what we envision when we're in grade five. We only see them in the rearview mirror when we're older with the passage of time. Is it fair to say your journey has been serendipitous? Absolutely. You know, I don't think that I could point out any point in my life where I thought, yeah, that's the thing that I'm going to do. I knew that nature was important to me. I had these moments in time that were marked or punctuated by really important learnings. Climate change has always been something that has been front of mind for me. You know, I read The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, I think in grade seven, and it never left my brain. But where I ended up, I feel so fortunate because it does feel a little magical because it doesn't feel like I had it all charted out and really had to chase it. Things kept coming up. And I think the key there is to be open and to say yes to those opportunities. I would absolutely agree. It sounds like you're the kind of person who likes to be challenged. You now manage an R&D team of almost 100 people, and I'm interested to know what the biggest challenge is, speaking of challenge, that you face on a daily basis. Is it focus? Is it funding, HR? What do you think? So my team is not quite that big. That's kind of the whole of the company. But for me, I think the challenge is is the focus and the fact that you have a team of really bright and energetic scientists. Sometimes my job is to corral all of that energy in the right path and to make sure that we're all moving in the same direction. And sometimes that is the most difficult part because I love some of the ideas that you come up with and I think, oh, it's so cool, it's so interesting. But because we have a very clear mandate to deliver to the industry, the job is to, to figure out what are those solutions and to sort of manage the innovation portfolio with that in mind. So I would say that's the challenge. Definitely not coming up with an amount of new ideas. It's figuring out what the right ones are. With all of your responsibilities, and in particular, having to manage people, if you could have a do-over, are there any courses in university that you wish you'd taken that would have made your path a bit easier? Oh, for sure. We often laugh about this as scientists where, you know, we're scientists in a really applied space, right? So we're constantly looking at the business context for the innovation outcomes. And so as a scientist, you know, in your master's and your PhD, it's like it's all about the science. But 
I would say, you know, for anyone who's interested in innovation as your career path, paying attention to some of those business courses that maybe you, you kind of blew off and that, oh, it's for someone else. Those things are really important and they don't always offer these things, but anything that has to do with strategy, I think is a really brilliant choice for people. I would absolutely agree. And I've, I've had those conversations with friends of mine. Yeah, I should have taken those business courses. Absolutely get what you're saying. This podcast is about leaders, disruptors, and innovators in Canada's life sciences sector. And I'm delighted to be speaking with you today, but some of our listeners might be wondering why we asked you to join us because you're in agriculture. Life sciences isn't all about oncology. Horticulture and agritech are important parts of life sciences. So I'd appreciate you explaining to our listeners the role your research and the Institute plays in the Canadian life sciences community. And this is a space that I think we're trying to break down the silos a bit ourselves. Agriculture science has always sat out here on its own. And the reality is it's so connected to our end users of those products. It's all of the people, it's all of our consumers that are going to have the nutritional benefits from the new varieties we develop. It's all of the communities that we can enable to grow their own food by the technologies that we develop. So thereby improving on food security and the whole locally grown movement, there's a whole host of technologies. And finally, horticulture is a generator of natural benefits. So when we think about natural infrastructure and the climate change movement with respect to climate mitigation, all of the things that we grow in horticulture, the trees, the flowers, those are part of our value as well. So those products that you have in your own garden or you see in your own landscape are all from the horticultural value chain. We are intimately connected with life sciences, whether we always need money or not. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'd like to change courses for a moment and borrow a phrase from one of my favorite podcasters, Terry O'Reilly, who hosts a podcast called Under the Influence. If I may, I'd like to ask you a personal question. What do you think has been your best mistake? For me, it's probably when I left university. So at one point when I was still in Lake Forest, and I was really deeply interested in American foreign policy. So talk about a nonlinear path. And I had a really great supervisor there who wanted me to stay right in the house this there and would focus on national security. And I kind of waffled on it and decided it wasn't the right path for me. For a long time, I saw that as a mistake because then I was like, well, what am I getting now? I've got to figure out what the next thing is. But for me, that I think that absolutely was my best mistake. That's a great story. Thank you for that. Our guest last week was Dr. Lisa Porter from the University of Windsor. She and I talked a bit about gender inequity and privilege. I'm wondering if you see that in your sector as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to be at the Ontario Minister of Agriculture's Food Summit last week, and this is something that came up in one of the roundtable discussions as well. And in agriculture, there are a number of underrepresented groups. Agriculture, frankly, is for everyone. It touches everyone. We're all involved in it. We're all influenced and can influence it. And I would say that for a long time, gender representation was very unbalanced. I would say that is changing more. Um, there's a lot more group and representation. You have two boys who are six and eight. I can only imagine how challenging it must have been having young kids in school during COVID and trying to continue your career. And you have had an interesting career. And I, I wonder if there's any advice you can offer to our listeners, especially women in STEM and university students who are about to graduate. 
absolutely was challenging. It's one of those times that I think I maybe haven't fully processed yet, <laughs> but there's a lot of challenges that female identifying people will face in COVID. I would say there was a lot of burdens placed at the feet of a number of my female colleagues. So that's the experience that I can speak from and, and not to mention myself. I think the biggest lesson is that we have so much to offer, but you need to be kind and patient with yourself because holding yourself to a standard that is unhealthy is not going to carry you along in the long run. The thing that I would say is that be kind to yourself, be patient. I am not good at this. I am constantly holding myself to a standard that is probably not a healthy one, nine times out of 10. I was told there's no secret sauce. How do you get there? It's like, you got to figure it out and just work harder than everybody else. I hate that message about having to work harder than everyone else. It's just so unfortunate. And frankly, it's still very true for all the women out there or girls out there. Like, again, listen to yourself. You absolutely have to work hard and hope that those of us that come before you pave the way. My next question is perhaps a bit tougher to answer. I think we all have three or four pivotal moments in our lives that steer us to where we end up. You mentioned a couple already, but can you think of moments in your life that were the turning points that got you to where you are today, like opportunities you turned down? You mentioned one. Advice you took to heart? I'll credit Steve Murphy with one. So I was finishing my master's, and as many people that have done a master's can probably attest to, you know, you finish that. I never do a look again like Steve, he stuck with me and he heard me out on it, but he encouraged me to think about the longer path forward. I read that food waste production and food security, especially northern food security for Indigenous communities, is important to you. I appreciate you sharing with us why it is important. You know, a thing that really bothered me, and I can walk down the street here at any time in the summer and I can get a fresh feed numbers, I can get tuppers, I can get whatever I want. We have remote communities in Ontario that are going to pay $20 for a head of ice bird lettuce or more. That blows my mind that we haven't been able to support these communities more. But ultimately, working with those communities to figure out from their perspective, what is it? And, and ultimately, how do we help them to enable their success? So if there are startups in that neck of life sciences who are listening to this podcast, interested in what you just said, should they be contacting you to say, hey, I've got something? Absolutely. And and I will echo something that also came up at the Ontario Minister's Food Summit is this very concept, is how important this is. In a perfect world, what do you hope the Institute can achieve? It's a place that, you know, with respect to food security in, in Northern Indigenous communities, We've done a little bit of work with some communities so far. I think we're really in the relationship building stage to figure out how we could support this. So what technologies, what varieties, what are the things that would be useful? We're constantly thinking about climate adaptation, huge challenge, but horticulture. I can't imagine the number of things that come across your desk that you have to say no to, regretfully. <laughs> what is it you're most proud of? I'll give the tip of the nose answer because it's kind of where my brain is at. We're end of fiscal year. Right now, I, I would say I'm really proud of the research and development team here. I think we've grown a lot in the last few years and really happy to be leading that. Last question. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? You know, I probably gave a few spoilers on it. A place 
that we're spending no small amount of time right now is figuring out like a day around waste food production. I think that is a big and growing challenge, figuring out how we can repurpose horticultural waste byproducts. I had a father who was a, an avid gardener, and I'm sure he's listening from above on this conversation thinking, yeah, good choice. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Darby McGrath, Vice President of Research and Development at the Vineland Research and Innovation Centre in Vineland, Ontario. If you'd like to learn more about the really cool work Darby and her team are doing, you can find out more on their website at vinelandresearch.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is brought to you by Lab Occupier and OmniBio, and we're very pleased to also be supported by the TMX Group. This week's episode was researched and produced by Tisha Persaud. We hope you like what we're doing and will appreciate you promoting us on social with the hashtags NGB Ideas and NGBI. You can follow us at NGB Ideas and you can follow me at Lab Occupier. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>